Subscribe to The Spectator in our flash sale until Monday only, and you'll not only get your first 12 weeks in print and online for £12, but you'll also get a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey absolutely free. To claim this offer, go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash whiskey. This offer is only available within the UK and you must be 18 or older to claim it. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm William Moore, The Spectator's Features Editor. And I'm Laura Prendergast, The Spectator's Executive Editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking whether Israel can rely on its allies, debating whether AI is the future of fiction, and learning about the pitfalls of dating widowers. First up, Andrew Pfeffer writes The Spectator's cover story this week, and he voices concern that support from Israel's allies might begin to waver if Israel doesn't develop a viable plan for after the war finishes. Paul Wood, former BBC foreign correspondent, and Dennis Ross, former Middle East coordinator under President Clinton and an advisor to President Obama, joins me now. Paul, can you start by, first of all, bringing listeners up to speed with the state of the conflict as it stands? Yeah, n- not to take your airtime, Mr. Ross, I'm just going to set the scene very quickly, perhaps perhaps pose a few questions for you. But to answer uh, Lara's question, it looks as if there's going to be a deal for the hostages. And the apparent terms of that deal are very revealing. Israel may have to release as few as 150 um, Hamas prisoners in return for 50 of the hostages or the captives. Um, That, I think, shows the relative weakness of Hamas in this, if you cast your mind back to when Benjamin Netanyahu, in a previous incarnation as prime minister, had to trade a thousand prisoners for one uh, captive, Gilad Shalit. I think Hamas is desperate for a ceasefire. Obviously, Israel desperate not to give them a ceasefire, but stuck over the issue of hostages. What I find interesting, and we've got Dennis Ross to tell us perhaps a bit more about this, is the extent to which the private and even the public messaging from the United States now is less and less supportive of Israel. Israel always starts off these operations with a lot of international sympathy because of whatever has provoked it, and much more sympathy because of the the size of the atrocity a month ago, the October the 7th pogrom. Um, But that's been ebbing away um, with every Palestinian life that's taken in Gaza, 11 or 12,000 now, as many as 5,000 children. And Dennis Ross has, has been in the middle of these discussions in previous US administrations. I'd like to know just what's being said privately. Um, I, I think that the support that Israel absolutely depends on from the United States is at risk over the way that it's fighting its war in Gaza. Look, I think it's a, it's a good question. In many ways, you have to look at President Biden. He has been emotionally committed to Israel for a long time. He takes a trip to Israel to become the first American president to go to Israel during a war. Uh, it's a reflection of who he is. The, the administration at his level has been consistently supportive of Israel and specifically supportive of the objective that Israel established, which is that at the end of this, Hamas not only has to be decisively defeated, it cannot be in control of Gaza, because if it's in control of Gaza, it will continue to pose a threat to Israel, and it will do, it'll do it again. It said, its leaders say it'll do it again, and we've seen through previous uh, ceasefires, uh, including uh, after a 52-day conflict in 2014, with very extensive destruction within Gaza, 
we saw them completely recoup and they built a whole military infrastructure and industrial base to support it. So you have from President Biden a very strong level of public support. I do think where there's uh, been an evolution, and to be fair, it's an evolution. I wouldn't say it's a dramatic chance, but it's an evolution. From the very beginning, President Biden was saying, when you go after these military targets, you need to do everything you can to minimize the civilian casualties. I think what we're seeing is more emphasis put on that because of the realities of what has taken place in this conflict. Palestinians in Gaza have paid a terrible price. And so the president, his administration, wants to try to minimize that price. But even more than that, now was a continued urge uh, Israel to, as it carries out a military operation, to do everything it can to minimize civilian casualties. It's also emphasizing the importance of getting humanitarian assistance to all the Palestinians uh, in Gaza, including now you have 2 million Palestinians who are now in the South. Israel emphasized, dropped leaflets, made phone calls, urged Palestinians in the northern part of Gaza to go to the south. And a vast majority of those living in the north actually have gone to the south. So there is a huge humanitarian need down there. The pause that is that will accompany the release of hostages, which would be four days, it could stretch longer because part of this deal is apparently that if Hamas will release 10 additional hostages each day, that they do that, the ceasefire will be extended. So that does, as Paul, as you said, Hamas desperately needs the pause. They're under enormous military pressure from Israel. Israel has not achieved all of its aims in the north, but it's achieved a lot of them. And they're going to turn their attention to the south uh, at some point. And so Hamas desperately needs this pause. And the Israelis are providing it not because the military campaign suggests this is the time to do that, but because getting hostages released is also an imperative within Israel. The pressure from the public, from the from the families, and just, I will say, ironically, even from the Israeli military, the Israeli military feels they failed in their duty on October 7th. Not that the people who went down there didn't fight heroically, but they failed because they weren't prepared they were strategically surprised, they were unprepared, and they weren't in a position to prevent all of these Israelis being taken hostage. So there is a there is a feeling within the IDF, within the leadership of the IDF, that we failed on October 7th to protect those Israelis. That was our responsibility. We failed in it. So now anything that can be done to get them released, we will go along with, with that. They will want to resume the military campaign. They will go along with it for the Biden administration, which was heavily involved in these discussions to get this deal done. This is also a welcome pause. They want to use that pause to begin to establish a much more consistent pattern of getting humanitarian assistance in. If I were to create a kind of formula for you, it would be the more time and space that the Biden administration will give the Israelis will depend entirely on how much is being done to make sure that Palestinians in Gaza now uh, are getting the humanitarian assistance they will need. And Dennis, what, what conditions do you think the U.S. Would, would support as a resolution to this conflict? Well, I think that they, the position of the Biden administration, as I said, is very much tied 
up with the or tied to the objective of, of Hamas no longer being in control of Gaza. There's a lot of ways to define whether you need to produce that. One is the military wherewithal, the military infrastructure, the military industrial base is all largely destroyed. The command control structure of Hamas, uh, the ability to preserve the organizational coherence of Hamas is also something that has now been rendered largely uh, undone. The, it doesn't mean that every Hamas you know, member, every Hamas has to be eradicated. That's not what this is about. Uh, if they have no leadership, if they have no real organization, uh, they're not in a position necessarily to to prevent some kind of interim administration backed by the international community from coming into being. I think that's very much what the, what the administration uh, would want to see and is hoping to see. And look, I think there's a recognition. If Hamas remains in power, they will come out of the tunnels. They will say we won. Uh, resistance has proven itself again. They will declare defiance. And basically, we will see the same thing happen again. They will rebuild themselves. Palestinians in Gaza will remain impoverished. They will reconstruct the tunnels using all the materials that should go above ground, they'll put below ground. They will rebuild their military base. It will take them time, maybe several years, but they will do it. They will do it again. You will not get big donors from the outside to invest in Gaza because they know if Hamas is there at a time of their choosing, they will do this again. So no one is going to invest now just to see all this destroyed again later. And Paul, what, what do you think the military campaign might look like as the IDF moves into the southern part of Gaza, particularly as, you know, as, as Dennis says, there are going to be two million displaced Palestinians in that area. What what are we likely to see happen? I was going to say, I, I guess we're going to see a mirror image of the campaign in the north. That's why the Israeli army's done it in two halves, so that they can send people back to a safe area in the north when they have cleared the north. And that means clearing the tunnels, because the tunnels are almost the only military asset that Hamas has got. And if you want to eradicate the Hamas leadership, who are presumably hiding in the tunnels, that's where you've got to go. But here's the problem for Israel, and by extension, I guess, for the United States, which supports Israel's aim of eradicating Hamas. You can kill a whole layer of leadership. And what the US and Britain found, say, in southern Afghanistan, is that you kill a bunch of people, and then the people who step into their shoes are even more radical. And especially if you kill a lot of civilians, every civilian you kill has a brother or a son or a relative who perhaps wants to take up arms. And the only way you deal with that is with a political solution. As I understand it, the Biden administration wants the two-state solution and wants the Palestinian Authority back in charge in Gaza after all this. Two things that Benjamin Netanyahu has said pretty clearly he does not want. In fact, you can interpret his whole career as trying to destroy any hope of a Palestinian state and any hope of a negotiated solution that lead to two states side by side. So I guess all that is a problem for the day afterwards. What I'd be interested to know from Mr. Ross is if he were still special assistant to the president or special envoy for the region, what he would be saying to the Israelis privately or publicly to stop them from killing so many civilians. Because I know the US has been advising at a very high level on how to do this campaign, but I can't imagine the US or British forces for that matter dropping a bomb on an apartment block and killing 40 or 50 civilians to get at one Hamas member. I just don't think there would be that, that calculation of proportionality. So what would you be saying to the Israelis now? First, I think we have to understand that we've, we've seen 
these conflicts, 2009, 2012, 2014, which, as I said before, went on for 52 days with the very significant destruction. 150,000 buildings in Gaza were uninhabitable. So, you know, we've seen extensive destruction before. At that time, there was a, you know, a consensus internationally that there should be massive reconstruction, a mechanism to control the material going in to ensure it wouldn't be diverted. And Hamas blocked it all because Hamas was still in control, was able to block it. I mentioned that because you have to look at the effect of October 7th on the Israelis. In all these previous conflicts, the Israelis always had a hierarchy of military targets. And they made a calculus of whether to hit them based on what they saw as the civilian consequences of hitting them. That balance shifted this time. And it wasn't because of October 7th and anger. It was because the objective was Hamas must be out of power when this is over. So if we don't hit those military targets that are the most important ones that help to preserve them in power, then we're in a sense adopting a, a campaign that cannot succeed. And that meant the whole balance shifted, that the kind of concern for civilian casualties became, unfortunately, a casualty of the, of the larger objective. So it's from the beginning, the administration has been urging the Israelis to try to minimize the civilian casualties. And I think it has had some effect at this point. I, I don't, I guess I would quibble with you slightly, Paul. I don't think we're going to see the exact same campaign in the South. It doesn't look exactly the same. You have all these Palestinians that are, are down there because the Israelis urge them to do so. I think that there will be much more attention given to creating safe spaces for them or safe areas where they can move for them. I think you're going to see much less of the the kind of blanket, almost carpet bar bombing that was done in the north. You'll see much less of that now. Uh, you're going to see something that's more targeted to supporting the ground forces that are in there. Bear in time, you know, the first, first couple of weeks, you did not have the Israeli ground forces in Gaza. That meant that the, the bombing campaign, in addition to being shaped by what I was describing in terms of hitting the most important military target. It was also affected by the fact that we didn't have to be mindful of their own forces. So I think this will be a little different. Uh, I do think it's still going to be daunting because you're right. Uh, Yaya Sinwar is not going to present himself. He and, and the leadership that, that remains is bound to be all deep underground. And Israel will have to go in and, and root them out. And that's not going to be a simple set of operations. But what they were doing in, in Gaza City, in Jabalia, you know, in the, the other refugee camps there, these are all, you know, these were all complicated operations. They demonstrated, I think, in ways that the administration actually had not anticipated. The administration, before these res went in, was cautioning them on a ground operation, explaining to them, look, this is going to be like Fallujah. And Israelis were saying, look, Fallujah was 6,000 miles from you. This is right next door. We have a lot of experience dealing with Hamas, including dealing with Hamas in tunnels. This is not new to us. What we've seen is that the Israelis, in a kind of systematic way, have been rooting out that military infrastructure, taking command of most of the command posts in Gaza City. But still, they, have, they still have work to do. They're being able to deal with 300 miles of, of tunnels underground uh, is a daunting task from a variety of standpoints, and they still have to deal with 
some of the Hamas fighters popping out of the tunnels, then popping back in. So there still is work to be done in the north. They will face, you know, big challenges in the south. But I think they're a little bit different than what they faced in the north. You mentioned Fallujah. I happen to have um, I've been in Fallujah for the second battle. I was embedded with a U.S. Marine battalion. The big difference there was that U.S. forces over a period of months and certainly weeks before the battle gave civilians an opportunity to leave the battlefield altogether. It was almost an empty battlefield, which means radically different tactics when there are not civilians in the way. There are still many, many civilians in the south of Gaza. It would make the idea, and it's good if it happens, as you say, if there were to be a safe area, but very difficult to police a safe area. These were um, mooted at various times in Syria. And of course, you get the problem, how do you stop the fighters from going into the safe area, pretending they're civilians? Or how do you stop them going in with weapons and then shelling you or sending rockets from the safe area? Safe areas only work if somebody's policing it, and that can only be Israel, but I can't imagine um, Egypt cooperating in that. And I say all that in the context of the claim from the Palestinians that a third of those killed have been killed in the south, where Israel has been instructing people to go. So I, I think that the challenge to the United States still is to reduce the civilian casualties and then to think about the day afterwards. One of the things that President Biden said at the outset of, of Israel's operations is don't make the same mistakes as we did after 9-11. One of those mistakes was not to plan things, not to think, as General Petraeus said, how does this end? So for all, all those reasons, I feel very pessimistic about the outcome of this. Uh, I don't know whether Mr. <laughs> Mr. Ross would agree with any of that. Look, I think it's the question becomes, you know, do you accept an outcome where Hamas is still in control? Because if you do, then we know this will happen again. Uh, if you do, then you, there is no possibility of moving towards peace at all because they are intent on blocking it. With Hamas, this is not about ending occupation. Is about ending Israel. They will continue to do whatever they can to frustrate any move towards peace. And you're going to find a lot of the those Arab states that were contemplating doing more with Israel will be more on the defensive because uh, if Hamas emerges from this and the image is that somehow they survived, therefore they won, uh, that means you're going to give a boost to this ideology of rejection. So it's really, if it can't, if this is a campaign, which I'll grant is difficult, but by the same token, if you're if, if the conclusion is it can't be successful, then you're also saying we can talk all we want about two states. There's no possibility it can happen. Israelis in a circumstance where Hamas is still in control of Gaza, uh, you're going to have a difficult time repopulating the southern part of Israel, and there will be no Israeli government. And I believe, by the way, in the aftermath of all this, we're going to see a new political reality in Israel. There will be a political reckoning in Israel. And we'll see a new political reality. There'll be a debate on what the future with the Palestinian should be. If Hamas is still in power, you're going to have an Israeli government capable of doing anything on the peace issue. You won't have a Palestinian partner because Hamas will be the dominant force among Palestinians. So I accept that this is very difficult, but I also think, and this is, I put the premium on the, on the Israelis, they have established an objective which I understand. I understand the imperative of achieving it. I understand the consequences of not achieving it. But to get the Biden administration and the president to, to continue to be there for them and to create this time and space for them, they will have to do dramatically more 
on the humanitarian issue. So that especially when you have, you're going to have all these the Palestinians who are now in the south, they're not going to be going back up to the north. Uh, they're going to have to be, their needs are going to have to be taken care of in the south. The Israelis are going to have to do much more to permit that. Every, all the movement goes through Rafa. And, you know, you have all sorts of, they don't have the same modern scanning machines there that you have at Karim Shalom. Uh, there is a, a kind of Israeli political consensus on not having assistance go directly from Israel into Gaza in, in an ironic way. If you use the scanning machines uh, for trucks that even could come out of out of Egypt to go through Karim Shalom and back to Egypt and back to Rafa, it adds a little bit of time, but far less than the bottleneck that exists right now in terms of having to check every single truck at Rafa. So Israel will have to will have to recognize that for it to have what it needs to be able to deal with its strategic objective and imperative, it's going to need to create much greater access and movement of humanitarian goods. Uh, the day after, look when they when the president talks about the Palestinian Authority going back to, to Gaza, he doesn't say now. If you look carefully at his words, he said ultimately. Uh, and I'll tell you, this is coming from the the Arab states are pushing in a way they have not pushed before for reform and revitalization of the PA. They know that it's lost all credibility. They know its governance is terrible. They know it's basically characterized by corruption. Uh, and they know that has to be overhauled. They also know it's been done before. In 2007, when the Bush administration, President Bush, organized all the donors, they went to Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, and said, you need to clean things up or we're not going to provide assistance. You need to appoint Salam Fayyad as the prime minister, and he has to be empowered to clean things up. And that was done. And you're going to need something similar to happen now. And over a period of, uh, say, you know, 12 to, to 24 months, you could see a retooling of the of the PA, uh, and you could see under those circumstances the PA coming back into Gaza. The Arab states want to see a political reunification of Gaza and the West Bank, not under Hamas. They want, you know, whatever they're saying publicly, privately, because you noted privately, they want to see Hamas lose because they understand the consequences of it not doing so. But they they want two states to be the political horizon. They want to see commitments to it. And they know it's not credible if you don't reunify politically Gaza and the West Bank. Thank you, Paul and Dennis. Next up, in the book section of the magazine this week, Nicholas Lazard reviews Andy Sunton's new book, Billy the Blue Well, which he co-wrote with the machine learning tool ChatGPT. Andy joins us now alongside crime author RJ Chowdhury, He's also known for using AI as a writing tool. So Andy, can you start by taking us through why exactly you decided to write this book in collaboration with ChatGPT? And, and for those that don't know about it yet, what happens in it? Okay, we put on the front of the book Andy Stanton versus ChatGPT. So that's another way to think about it. I, like millions or tens of millions of people around the globe, was smitten by ChatGPT when it came out. It intersected with lots of my interests, which is primarily how we think about words and connections and meaning and what is reality. And before I knew it, I had typed a very silly prompt into ChatGPT, which was, uh, <clears throat> sorry, everyone, tell me a story about a blue whale with a tiny penis. 
And then it started doing funny things and I kept pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. And I spent a month writing a novel length story with this thing, thinking this is blowing my mind. At some point, it became clear to me that this was showing me a kind of exploded diagram of what human creativity and connection is. And it was kind of reflecting back my own process at me. And that's when I really fell into the wormhole. So I would say that I didn't decide to do this at all. The idea found me as it does whether you're working with a crazy new word god machine or not. But this took me deeper than I ever expected to and, go. And, and what did it teach you about ChatGPT? I mean, did, did, was it a kind of creative hindrance? or was Oh, it, it was a creative... It's, it's like the um, broomsticks in Fantasia. So, so the book itself is, is the story of Benny the Blue Whale and the weird kind of genitocentric religions that grow up in his underwater world and that starts to become very metafictional as it goes on but then there's this other layer of me trying to track what it's doing and what I think I'm doing so this is a very heavily annotated book with me sort of saying oh you see this bit here and when I'm writing I like to put these sorts of ideas and cross-referencing it with other things in my head and other literature and how we write so what it taught me was um uh, what it showed me was you know, sort of um, cat wrestling, or cat, what do they call it? Cat shepherding, right? Cat, <laughs> cat herding, where, you know, you're, um, it, you start off with this thing and you're trying to direct this thing in one direction and it just goes sploink and it throws everything out there and you go, oh God, that's irresistible. And you pick up an idea that you might not have come up with and you run with that and it goes sploink again and you've got a million more cats to herd, right? <laughs> but then, so it, it was a very back and forth sort of process of, um, Hmm, amusement, I would say. Hmm, sounds, I mean, sounds fascinating. RJ, you're known for using AI as a writing tool when it comes to your own crime novels. What's been your experience and, and can you make the case for using it? Absolutely. So um, I don't use it to write the books for me, but I use it as a kind of super editor on demand. So I tend to write, you know, at four in the morning is kind of my preferred writing time. Uh, and there's nobody then to bounce ideas off. And I found ChatGPT is a fantastic tool to be able to bounce ideas off. So, you know, if I'm stuck in a certain place and I say, look, what might happen here? I'll put in a prompt and it'll give me seven, ten ideas of what might happen next. I typically wouldn't use any of those ideas specifically, but they might spark other ideas uh, and take it forward. And I've got a second use I've started using it for, which is even more exciting for me. So I wrote a children's book about five, six years ago. And I've always wanted to do a graphic novel, but I've never known how to do one. So I've actually now teamed up with an illustrator and she's doing the um, uh, uh, panels for the graphic novel using Midjourney. Uh, and she then kind of edits them. But I wasn't quite sure, well, how do I translate my book into a graphic novel? So I literally took the first chapter, put it into ChatGPT and said, give me the outline for a graphic novel based on this chapter. And it came back with, right, first panel, this should be the image, this should be the text. Second panel, this should be the image, this should be the text. And it was fantastic. And it took me about 50% of the way where I needed to go to, then the other 50% was kind of me. So it, it works brilliantly well as a co-pilot, co-writer, whatever you want to call it. And are you upfront with your readers and your audience about the fact that you use ChatGPT? Uh, for the graphic novel, I absolutely will be. Uh, for the other books, it's no different from my having a conversation with my wife or a conversation with my editor. It's pretty much exactly the same thing, you know. So if I'm stuck with something, I'll often go to my wife and say, hey, listen, my character's in this situation. Give me a few ideas and she'll throw a few ideas out. 
and then I'll kind of run run with them. So it doesn't write it for me. The words are my own. The characters are my own. But it's a really good thought partner. So for something like that, I have no problem saying I used it for something like that. But frankly, to my mind, it's, you know, we've been using spell check and grammar check and stuff like that for years. And to me, this is just taking it to the next stage. And you, were you surprised by any of the choices that the AI made? I mean, you speak in the in the book about the inspired choice of the name Benny. Like, take, <sighs> take us through that and, and why, you know, what, what decisions you kind of were impressed by. Okay, well, ChatGPT will basically yes and you, right, which is a term I learned from improvisation. It will sort of, you'll sort of say, oh, is, is that right? That the character you just told me about ran a sweet shop and he'll go, oh, yeah, yeah. And it will sort of basically build on what you give it, right? Which is very alluring when, you know, working with it in the way I did and being sort of beguiled by it to begin with and thinking, oh, my God, the story is going really well because it seems to be agreeing with me, right? Which is, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like... A, confirmation bias you know and I'm going oh the story's definitely on track because it's telling me it's working right what I'm really doing is picking out the bits that I like and forgetting about the other bits every so often and I would say certainly at the start of the story it made a few accidental well it made a few choices that accidentally tickled me and I thought this is a great story tell me a story about a blue whale oh Benny the blue I love the name it's funny it's a big broad cartoonish name as it goes on you know, I tend, I, I get lost in who's doing what. At points, it does, it makes choices that I like so much that I think, I, I call them brilliances, like chess brilliances, where a supercomputer in chess will find it very hard to find a, a brilliant move. But from time to time, it makes the, it, it would come out with these plot details. Again, I would say, you know, fooled me or uh, sedated, seduced me into thinking, I am making the only possible story possible with this for me now that's working. All of this is like a corollary of real writing, where when the story's going well, you really feel like you're on a kind of greased rail, you know, a golden track, the only possible outcome. So everything that I did with ChatGPT was like an analogue for real writing. It was a really interesting simulation and it hurt my brain so much (laughs) because I knew it wasn't writing. To me, it's not kosher Mm. at some level. Do you feel slightly unsettled at the fact that you've written the book? Extraordinarily unsettled, right? I've spent the year year trying to describe it on the page Mm. and I'm still processing it and my thoughts about what this is and what human agency is. Mm. You see, I think it's fantastic. Andy had that really good experience with it. I, I, I've, I've got a slightly different take, I think, which is that because it's been trained on millions of other books and the whole copyright thing is a complete another issue, which does need to be dealt with. But putting that aside for a minute, I think the problem with ChatGPT is it's never surprised me. There's always a kind of reversion towards the mean because it's going towards an average kind of book. So I think it's fantastic to give ideas, but you need to need to build on that because I don't think it would create something truly original because it's been trained on tons of other stuff. Andy, are you the same Andy who wrote the Mr. Gump? Yes. You see, I loved those books and my kids loved those books, but I cannot see ChatGPT coming up with anything like the Mr. Gump books. it's not my intention to say, oh, look, I wrote a book that's, you know, that's brilliant and funny in its own right. That's, it's to explore how if you keep spiking it with your own personality over a long haul, uh, you know, 
because by the time I had finished with the actual Benny story itself, pre the annotations, right, that's 125,000 words, which is ludicrous, right? And I cut that down to like 45,000 words to talk about in the book. But here's the point that I found, one of the many things that I found interesting was that as we went on, because I'm spiking it more and more with my own kind of personal sea of Andy, my own Andy database, it starts to echolocate me, I feel, give me an increasingly detailed rendering of myself. It's not my writing, it's not how I do it, but it starts to become very surprising. Uh, You know, what I put into it over the long haul would be, uh, what I get out of it would be very different to what you would get out of it if you carried on putting yourself into it for that long. This isn't a recommendation, by the way. (laughs) No one should do what I did, it's insane. (laughs) Just a very quick one. So, you know, I've been trying to do it. And, you know, one of the things they say about crime novels is the ending should be surprising but inevitable. I say that about any story as well. And what I found using ChatGPT, you get to the inevitable, but I'm not sure you really get to the surprising, which will make someone go, oh, wow, that I did not see coming. Uh, Mm -hmm. I think that really requires our ingenuity to get to that level I, I think i got there with benny i'm not i'm not i'm, gonna, I'm not going to sit down and say like um look at this it's hemingway look at this it's uh, it's mantel it's not right that the style is horrible as you know right funnily enough even horrible style makes me laugh as well it has its own it has its own context you know you're writing a kind of frankenstein version of uh, of english after a while you know it, it's 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 momentarily it's momentarily uh, sort of great moment. Oh, it's momentarily great moments. That's I can't even speak in this now. You say, see what it's done to my brain. It, it's occasional moments of what I call brilliance really stand out because, and they're very funny. But it's it's kind of erosion of meaning and elision of actual sanity. I find that interesting as well. But I'm probably at that point using it as self therapy. <laughs> no, Jay, just just to finish on. I mean, your your writing obviously within the context of crime. Have you found there to be anything particularly unnerving about what ChatGPT is capable of coming up with in terms of a, a, a plot that's you know a criminal plot? Um, it, look, it, it, I've often said, look, give me a plot based on this and this and this to see what it comes up with, and it's come up with some interesting ideas. But I always have to then. I would say they end up being about 45%, 40% there. Then I kind of need to add the other 60%. But because ChatGPT has been done in such a way that it tries to avoid anything that's deeply criminal or deeply <laughs> pornographic, <laughs> I can't get the real horror I would love to get from it because the algorithm stops me doing that. If there's a version that doesn't have that algorithm in it, that would be truly fun to have a play with. And terrifying. That stuff's interesting to me as well, because how do you, uh, you know, how do you legislate for language and what they're trying to do with the censorship guardrails on chat GPT is such a ludicrous way to think about language. You know, you, you can't you can't sort of just try and cut off certain resonances of words. I'm talking about a tiny penis in this book and it won't it doesn't like it because it's not in a medical context. It knows that it's in a comedic context at some point. Well, there someone's got to mention Orwell. Surely. Here we go. Uh, there is, you know, George Orwell's Newspeak where an institution tries to remove resonances and secondary and tertiary meanings from words. I find that extraordinarily interesting and frightening. Thank you, Andy and RJ. And finally, when is it acceptable to date a widower? 
That's the question that Elisa Seagrave ponders in her piece in this week's magazine. She joins us now along with Cosmo Landesman, journalist and former dating columnist for The Times. Elisa, you write in your excellent piece for the magazine this week about some of the pitfalls when it comes to dating widowers. Could you start by telling our listeners what are some of these pitfalls? What is it about widowers that people should be perhaps wary about? Well, I'd actually never dated a widower, but suddenly I realised that all these widowers are seen to appear. But I, I think I was in, I'm always in awe of the, the, the wife, the dead wife. I feel like, you know, um, Daphne Jamoria's second Mrs. De Winter, that you can't equal the dead wife. I kind of feel you have to trade very carefully. Yes. Um, you're in competition with a dead person. I think James Joyce wrote a very good short story about this called The Dead. I think it's about that. And you, uh, you also mentioned in your piece that you get, there are some circumstances where, it's, it, in fact, it's quite common for uh, a widower uh, to form a relationship with a widow because I suppose they have a you know, an understanding of, of the, the mutual situation of the whole thing. But then you also say in your piece that that has its own, its own pitfalls, doesn't it? Possible well, pit- I asked someone I thought has had a very long second marriage, supposedly very happy, they appeared to be. They were both widowed, rather young, and I thought everything had gone very smoothly. But no, she told me when I, on the phone that uh, no, she was, he'd had a, been a widower for six years. She'd only been one less than a year. I remember her children were rather annoyed. They thought, you know, like Hamlet, particularly one of the sons, she was marrying far too fast. And then she admitted to me the other day it had been too fast because she was still a grieving widow. And the, and the widower, six years, you know, his wife died ago, um, wanted to move on and have rather fun. And Cosme, what about you? Have you ever dated a widow? I have, yes, disastrously. Um, my problem was that... Um, her bedroom was kind of a shrine to her ex-husband with all these fabulous photos of all his great accomplishments. He was a writer too, very successful, very handsome. He was So I just had this terrible sense of inadequacy every time we went to make love and it was sort of went downhill from there. Exactly. Oh my goodness. Well, I suppose there's an element which, which um, runs through this whole piece and through Cosmo's experience just there, which is... Um, perhaps a sense of uh, what's socially appropriate in terms of the speed at which it's acceptable to, to, to move in uh, on, on somebody's turf, I suppose. There's, there's two schools of thought on this one. One is go very slowly, give them time to grieve approach. The other approach is get in there straight away, boom, because grief is a great aphrodisiac. <laughs> there's a great sense of urgency. Life is short. You crave physical contact. Yeah, you know, it's it, 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 things like that. But is are you worried, Cosmo? I mean, um, Elisa mentions in her piece the sort of worry about being, as she puts it, indecently pushy. So, no, that's never bothered me. Yeah, <laughs> I did. It's indecently pushy. You find true love in this world. I hate to say it. And Elisa, you you conclude your piece by actually saying that rather than a widower, you 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 found um, canine company more sort of more comforting. Can you tell us about that? Well, I had my other dog for 17 years, and, and so I haven't had one for nearly two years, but suddenly this dog's appeared. She's only been here two days. I've already got a new lease of life because it made me... I mean, it's a bit depressing. All these friends of mine are ill. Some of them have died. Um, so it's made me sort of feel very young again. And, and my, I, maybe my main relationship with my other dog was my main relationship. I mean, I had affairs, but the dog was perhaps my main relationship. 
There's nothing. There's nothing worse than having to compete with an ex, uh, you know, an ex husband. It's an ex dog as well. That's <laughs> that's a really difficult one. Yes, women tend to do this bond more with the dogs. That's yep. true. I've heard men say that. One of the other um, possible pitfalls that you mentioned, at least in your piece, it's not just the fear of seeming indecently pushy. There's also uh, this idea you have in the piece of uh, expectation, I suppose, from a new widower partner you know uh, and and there's a fear that you write about of of ending up with someone who who wants to be looked after uh, perhaps as the as the as they approach their old age and someone who's who's looking uh, for a partner who's more like a nurse a nurse or a mother i mean it, do you think that's that's particularly a problem with forming a relationship with a with a widower well i think it depends on their former wife if you don't know the former wives you don't really know that what sort of type of relationship but some of these men obviously have had wives who've looked after and done all the practical things, you know, that kind of thing. So, yes, it would be very difficult to match that. And Cosmo, just just finally, I mean, after your own experience dating a widow, do you think you'd ever go there again or has it, has it put you off for life? Well, it would depend on the person. I, I generally think that's better to avoid that particular area. That it's, too, it's emotionally too complex. It's a minefield. So I, I wouldn't do it again myself. Yeah. And, and Elisa, you say you've, you yourself have not dated widowers because you see some of these uh, possible problems that may arise. But uh, presumably, if the right chap came along, uh, you wouldn't hold the fact that he's a widower against him, would you? No, I think one of them might be pairing at a Christmas party. But I mean, I have I also have this fear: another woman may well have come in on the fast lane, and he'll be appearing, appearing with her. Last, yeah, Lisa, you've got to be a little more pushy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, Elisa and Cosmo, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's it for this week. As ever, if you've enjoyed the podcast, pick up a copy of The Spectator magazine to read all the stories in full. I'm William Moore. And I'm Lara Prendergast. And we hope you'll join us again next week. Mm-hmm.